everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Laura Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the show. We got Will Tope here today with uh, Lena Energy. Um, Lena is, is really interesting because it's a different battery chemistry um, and has a lot of uh, uh, unique uh, physics that really go back a long time. Um, but it's it's coming to the forefront because we're solving you know really emergent problem. Will, why don't you tell us about you know this this challenge that brings you here to Houston? Uh, absolutely. So if I start with the yeah. problem yeah. that we're trying to solve, problem is today's storage technologies like lithium ion are ultimately too expensive and not the best technology to really shift long periods and large chunks of energy in and around the day. And as we're seeing more and more renewables deployed on grids, uh, we're seeing this this inability to use low cost, low carbon electrons when you need them. And that is most obvious human demand patterns all around the world. There's two peaks. There's one in the morning where we all wake up, we turn stuff on, then it dips. We consolidate our use in, in offices and schools and all the rest of it. And then we come home and we turn the AC on, we do our, we sort our lives out. And mm -hmm. these two peaks in the day, we need a, a low cost method of shifting electrons into those. Yeah. It's, and here we are in, um, early September, and I'm getting these notices from ERCOT, um, and uh, they're saying, please, you know, please turn down the power uh, or your AC usage from like 3 p.m. to, to 7 p.m. And uh, I even saw yesterday they had this notice where they had all hands on deck. They're like, all power needs to be on call because we're worried about not being able to meet demand and they want to avoid blackouts. Absolutely. And, and it's one of these things where you go, we should have planned for this a while ago. <laughs> we should have known this was coming, and every year it keeps coming back. And and I think that the ERCOT folks are doing the best with what they have, but they don't have our battery storage systems. Right, and they don't. Yeah. That one of the issues we have is one of the best and most deployable means of renewable mm -hmm. energy is solar, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that is great at eating away at the demand in the middle of the day, but we just said that's where it kind of it troughs out anyway, yep. right? Yep. And so when you get to three p.m. or four p.m. and then by the time you get into early evening, the sun's not there, right? But mm -hmm. that's when people most need to cool the houses down yep. and get comfortable. Yep. And this is not just a Texas problem, right? This is a, a global problem. It's most acute in those markets where you have a ton of solar potential and a ton of heat. And that's another of the, the issues with our incumbent technologies is they don't, lithium ion particularly, mm -hmm. doesn't like to be in high temperatures. Mm -hmm. It really needs a lot of capital and operating expense to keep it happy yeah. in those high climates. And so what, what do they do? They, they put air conditioning on the battery itself or does it just- It's typically a liquid yeah. cooling circuit. Okay. So it's the, the same kind of technology you would see in the bottom of a Model 3 or a Model mm. Y. Uh, it's really effective, right? Mm. And that in itself will, will make lithium ion safe. So mm. I'm a big, I'm a battery advocate first and foremost. It's, it's really a matter of cost is by the time you've done that. And in, in, if it gets hot enough, you're gonna have to do that as well as HVAC. Mm -hmm. just to mitigate against the possibility of getting too hot. By the time you've done that, it's a really expensive system. Mm -hmm. And so it can do certain things really well, mm -hmm. like frequency response and ancillary services. And that's what we're seeing a lot of the batteries today doing. 
but it's not cheap enough to start shifting four, five, six hours of energy in and around the day. And that's that's the fundamental problem. And so that's why we need a new chemistry. Well, or an old chemistry <laughs> deployed old chemistry. in the right way, yeah. <laughs> which is a, a good segue, I guess, to yeah. what we're doing. So, yeah. so Lena Energy, like we just said, is not focused on developing new chemistry sets and mm. chasing side reactions, all of that type of stuff. Uh, what we've done is taken this wonderfully stable sodium-based chemistry mm. that was originally developed in the 1970s and commercialized in the 1980s uh, and was commercialized in a way that ultimately wasn't able to get the cost down. Um, and what we're doing is combining that, that original chemistry, but with advancements in ceramics, which have mostly come out of the fuel cell industry. And mm. it's where our technical founders really built the, the majority of their career. And so they recognize that in the fuel cell world, where we look towards today's, mm. you know, most prominent fuel cells are all these stacked fuel cell concepts, mm, right? So it's mm, stacks mm. of layers on top of each other. Um, it was taking everything that they did and our CTO, Rich Dawson, said, well, I know a wonderful chemistry that's been held back, but they, we could apply these exact mm. same principles and these exact same advancements to that chemistry and really unlock its potential. And so I've got a, uh, a single battery cell in my yeah. hand here, and it doesn't look like your typical AA battery or typical lithium ion cell, right? It looks a bit like a, a microchip, and that's because we have this thin, planar ceramic electrolyte mm. sitting in there, and that's, uh, that's where we get our safety from, and that's also because we can churn these things out on, the, on an automated manufacturing line. That's where we get the cost down as well. Yeah, and, and, and just for size, yeah, a, a, a big circuit chip or a small coaster. There we go. <laughs> and and it. Yeah. you know, we, we are a deep tech company, yeah. so we've been at this now for, uh, in earnest, mm. about four years, mm. uh, and we are still looking towards making bigger cells in the future. Mm. Um, but we're in a place now we're able to go demonstrate the product. And so that's a real key milestone yeah. for us. Last year, we did our first uh, systems, right? Mm. So it wasn't just about what an individual cell could do, but we were able to demonstrate um, what a collection of cells together can do uh, as, as a product, right? Got it. And so, uh, and, and this will show how little I may know about batteries. So there are different battery form factors, right? There's that's like right. prismatic cells, there are coin cells. This is a non-standard form factor. It is. It right? is. And that's the... Tell me about that. So I would, it, the closest thing to it is a prismatic cell, mm -hmm. but really it's its own thing. So mm -hmm. we have inside here on, on one side, we have our cathode, mm -hmm. our cathode electrode. We then have that thin electrolyte, that ceramic electrolyte, and a means of creating an interface between mm -hmm. the two. And on the other side, we have a metal anode. So we have mm -hmm. a sodium metal anode. Mm -hmm. And that's because we're using a sodium metal anode that's a really high energy density in terms of you've got a lot of electrical potential in a small amount of space and weight. And that's how we get uh, what, a key metric for, for batteries is energy density. Mm. And that's how we're able to achieve high energy densities. But w one point of note there, energy density is typically really interesting for EVs. Yeah. And that's because higher energy density equals more range. Yep. Um, it's less critical to energy storage in terms of you typically have a lot of space and you're not worried about weight. But if you get the energy density up of a battery, it means you have less cells per kilowatt yep. hour, right? Yep. Or less cells per megawatt hour. And that's how you get the cost down. Yep. And, and if you look at the majority of the cost reduction we've seen in lithium ion over the past five years, it's all come from energy density developments as opposed to uh, manufacturing improvements. The yeah. majority has come from that, that energy yeah. density. I, I remember when we were doing um, engine systems, uh, we would often get quotes based on volume or weight. And it was, it was plus or minus 15%, but it was always amazing to me how it, at the end of the day, it's kind of the same... There same we go. Cost. Yeah, and, and it's that same thing. It's about energy density. It drives a lot of the other system factors. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally relate to that. 
And and so there are other changes to the system here that um, result from the novel chemistry. And one of the things I think we talked about was this thing: this this chemistry has better heat performance. Um, tell us a little bit what what drives that. Yeah, we so we uh, took a look at energy storage systems, and I mentioned that mm. lithium ion. One of the issues it has is that it doesn't like to operate in high temperatures, and that's mm. because the ideal operating temperature range for an individual cell is between 23 degrees and 27 degrees. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so that's yeah. ideal sweet spot, right? And so you're using a lot of an energy to try and get as close to that sweet spot as mm. possible. Um, and that means wasted heat, right? Mm. You're, you're using that liquid cooling circuit can't do much with the heat when you're, when you're yeah. cooling something down from, say, an ambient of 30 degrees to 25 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that, that happens on almost every electrical electrochemical device is when you cycle it, you generate heat, yeah. right? And from the start, our engineers knew that there must be a better way of using the heat that you generate from cycling uh, to your benefit as opposed to having to engineer systems to remove it. Yeah. So great thing about this chemistry is it has a really wide operating temperature mm. range and it has a high operating temperature range. So I'm going to use Celsius, uh, uh, <laughs> lean into my Europeanness here, but uh, it operates between, at the extremes, 160 degrees and 300 degrees. Mm. We like to operate between 220 and 300 with a set point of 250. Um, but every time, so we yeah. heat the systems up mm. and every time it cycles, it's generating heat. And so we just mm. wrap our systems in passive insulation. We get rid of the moving parts. We get rid of the liquid cooling system. We get rid of the, mm. the HVAC. And we've designed the system so that we're generating as much heat as we're cycling as we're losing through to, to the natural mm -hmm. heat losses of the mm -hmm. system. And it was a really big milestone for us to actually demonstrate that. It'd always been a principle, right? But I think you explain yeah. that and people are like, I don't, I, okay, it sounds like it might make sense. But, but we were able to demonstrate that thermal performance in you know, a distri distribution scale system and show that the heat losses are relatively small and the, the math does make sense. The science yeah. pans out. Yeah. We can hit these plus 90% round trip efficiencies um, by, by getting rid of all this uh, additional hmm. thermal management system. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it's the system design that, that really drives things. And I think one of the things you were sharing with me earlier is just on a dollar per dollar basis, there's, an, there's a performance improvement at the cell level and at the system level. So share that, share a little bit. Of that yeah, so, so right now, if you just looked at the, the global benchmarking for energy storage systems, yeah. a full turnkey system uh, per Bloomberg is $322 per kilowatt hour. In reality, it's, and that, that's turnkey, right? So that's a shipping yeah. container yep. with, filled with cells with everything from the cells, the housing, the thermal management that we've talked about, mm -hmm. the power conversion, the shipping container itself. It's plug and play with some EPC money. Does on that there include well. people making money? Uh, there? <laughs> there is a little bit there, but <laughs> okay, <that. good>. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, if we look at our system, primarily driven by the raw materials, but also that simplified balance of plant, uh, we're benchmarking at, at scale, we will deliver systems at around $185 mm -hmm. per kilowatt hour. Mm -hmm. So a nice disruptable uh, space there. Yeah. Uh, and the other part that's interesting for our business is those systems that we're talking about are coming out of gigafactories, right? Mm -hmm. This concept of mm -hmm. a, a factory that's producing over a gigawatt hour per year of, of sales. These things are huge, right? If you've seen the Arizona yep. one, yep. Uh, the yep. Tesla Arizona, these are colossal facilities, multi-billion dollar facilities. Um, one of the benefits of going at this problem from the chemistry and from the bill of materials is scale is not your only lever. Mm. And so we, you know, our strategy is based around the fact that we can hit those competitive price points at a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and then of course we can grow and get even better and better and better. But 
uh, we can do it with a say a 100 megawatt hour PE facility so a mega mm. factory instead of a gigafactory mm. at least mm. as a startup yep. especially in deep yep. tech that that for me is super powerful because yeah. it means uh profitability is within arm's reach despite yeah. this being a, a really important yeah. deep tech um solution and one of the things people talk about is finance risk and exactly you, you don't have to raise a billion dollars to get going you can really um reduce a lot of the risk for the investors but but kind of going back to the problem right yeah um you know e economics means lower cost total installed cost um and uh, that kind of dictates the the useful you know uh economics of the battery system but what about operating life is that yep. also comparable i think comparable. the numbers we're seeing today are like what is it, 10,000 cycles? Or am I off by an order of magnitude? No, you're not off by an order of magnitude. And it's, uh, it's a constant discussion yeah. point in, yeah. in industry, right? Yeah. Uh, things you generally need to look at is uh, the depth of discharge that mm. you're measuring your, yeah. your life at, yeah. uh, the life cycle itself as in itself, right? So there'll be a number of cycles. And then what is the state of health of the battery at the end of those mm. cycles? Mm -hmm. uh, so we're somewhat comparable comparable with a chemistry called LFP, lithium iron phosphate, okay. which is the mm -hmm. the emerging technology and um, or the emerging best in class for energy storage. Yep. Uh, and that means we, we've, this chemistry has been demonstrated to and warranted to 4,500 cycles mm. down to an 80% state mm. of health. Okay. Um, so we're really happy with that. You can go further. We've seen others use this chemistry back in the day to 7,000 cycles. Mm. Um, but it's a, it, for anyone out there looking at uh, energy storage system economics. I think it's it's the, one of the most important parts of the equation. And it's one way you need to make sure you're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges, right? And I guess as a practical matter, this is uh, when they talk about a cycle, it's a full discharge and, and 4,500 discharges is already 12 years, yeah. roughly, if I do bad math. <laughs> oh, <laughs> one cycle a day, day, right? Uh, and, and again, yeah. the standard is generally quoting the health down to 80%. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the industry doesn't really know what we're going to do here, right? Yeah, so yeah. industry is investing in these projects on a 10 or 15 or 20 year sure. basis, right? The reality is it'll come down to a, uh, a cost benefit analysis in 10 years time. Say you've lost 20% of the capacity of the battery. It'll come down to a question of has the cost of battery cells gone down significantly enough that it's, it's worth yeah. re refreshing the cells, right? And getting back to 100% capacity. So I've got you know, um, uh, at that point, I'll have more revenue generating potential because I'll have my full mm. cycles back. Or should I just wait it out and, and yep. basically accept that I'm not discharging yeah. as deep as I used to be able to? Yep, yep, yep. Um, so the economics are, are, are superior in terms of cost um, and you got a similar life cycle performance. Um, where are you in the commercialization cycle? And, and the real question is, why aren't people buying it off the shelves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, so that it's the same answer to both of them. Yeah. You know, they, we are a, uh, a deep tech company that is still developing our mm. technology. Uh, I mentioned we've done systems, right? Mm -hmm. But we're still building our systems out of the lab, and there's still things we'd like to do to improve the yeah. um, improve the performance. Uh, in terms of that commercialization journey, yeah. then it means. Rather than putting these on the shelves and having them ready to sell, we'll get there, yeah. but uh, we're not there yet. It came down to, okay, in, within the sector, mm -hmm. right, we need to find where can we be most impactful. Mm -hmm. And for us, that was taking one of, one of the elements which is unique here is that we talked about how in, inside our systems we're operating at 250 mm -hmm. degrees. And that means from an efficiency perspective, it doesn't really matter if outside of the system it's 20 degrees mm -hmm. or 40 degrees or 50 degrees or even 60 degrees. Um, whereas in a typical system where you're, you're trying to cool those cells as best as you can, 
efficiency drops off a cliff as mm. you start to get into those high temperatures and it becomes a safety risk as well yeah. you can keep it safe oh, yeah. but it but again it adds to the to the cost to make sure you're not getting anywhere close to to thermal runaway and so we looked at that problem and we said the problem is most apparent where you've got high solar potential right and so we looked at some of the emerging markets like india where mm. massive amount of solar potential in the middle of the day also very hot a growing middle class that wants to turn on air conditioning and that duck curve just getting steeper and steeper yep. and steeper and steeper. Yep. Um, and so that's where we've done a lot of our work out there. And we've got some great uh, relationships and partnerships in place to go demonstrate and pilot project our, our systems at a distribution scale uh, by the end of this year. And then mm -hmm. from there, we'll be growing in line with our manufacturing capacity. So mm -hmm. as we step up production out of Lancaster, where we're moving out of glove boxes and into automated manufacturing, <laughs> yeah. um, we'll be able to get more and more, the, more of those systems out. Um, but great to... Great to have our, our hypothesis validated in a mark, market mm. like India, which for me, mm. I just I go out there and I'm just amazed by the amount of growth and uh, potential. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know anything about the power market in India. So obviously here you have like a deregulated market in, in, in Texas. We have generators. Um, the, gen, uh, the ERCOT system has a way to compensate people for energy. Is the Indian market like different? Is there a different buyer? Yeah, I assume the regulator is different. So, yeah. so here one of the earliest customers mm. for an energy storage system might be a trader, right? Mm. A power trader, mm -hmm. right? Mm. It's just another means of, of capturing arbitrage. arbitrage. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Um, in India, that's not going to be the case. Mm. But what you do have is uh, a, a power producer who's also typically acting as a distribution company mm. as well. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting on the same problem, which is, okay, I've deployed a bunch of solar on a bunch of rooftops, right? And I've got plenty of that in the middle of the day but my customers are experiencing blackouts and I'm having to pay a very high price to turn up my coal. And it's, mm. it's, it's about 80 to 90% coal mix out there mm. still mm -hmm. um, in the afternoon. And so if I can deploy a storage technology that can take as much of that solar in the middle of the day and shift it, I'm saving electrons and I'm saving carbon. Sorry, I'm saving money and I'm yep. saving carbon. Yep. And so it's almost it, the, the customer is less of an independent third party who's just capturing arbitrage. It is the, the supply chain itself. It's the generator and the uh, transmitter and the distribution side yeah. of the equation. And, and that exists at a distribution scale, which is where we're, we're targeting initially. Mm. Uh, but the same problem exists if you're trying to do uh, large industrial customers, right? They ultimately will want to load shift mm. Mm. and eventually good services as well, right? So stacking the, the you, instead of being directly attached to the solar, you're just importing from the grid in the middle of the day to try mm. and make that back available later yeah. on. No, I, I, I'm curious about uh, India's market just because I don't know much about it. And, and I'm thinking... You know, even in the U.S., we have a challenge where utilities sometimes don't aren't incentivized with their own structures to to want to adopt new technology like this because they have these ratepayer cases and there's just no way to recognize the value. Is there is there a mechanism in the Indian market that's that's forcing utility to have to adopt this, or is it someone there's, gets in trouble? If <laughs> yeah, there's there's two sides of it. Yeah. There's, a, there's incentives that have just been recently announced over the past week for oh, wow. those deploying energy storage technologies, mm. project-based incentives, mm -hmm. right? So this is basically to de-risk. If you're deploying a storage in a certain duration for the first time, it's untested, mm -hmm. and these project incentives will de-risk it sufficiently that you're willing to, to, to deploy the capital on them. The, the other side of the equation is produ production-linked incentives. So mm -hmm. there's a ton of capital um, uh, and incentives from the government to build manufacturing out in India as well, mm. because hmm. we look at again a lot of people in this uh, in this space are chasing building bed 
battery gigafactories. Yeah. Um, so it's not unique to India, but they certainly what may be unique there is they they've got specific incentives for what they call advanced chemistries and that's mm. alternatives to lithium ion it's alternatives to the incumbent so there's a the there's a discrete fund just for these advanced uh, chemistries yeah and i think um just on a completely separate topic i think some of the um news that came out over the summer was that um there's an expectation that the demographics in china and india are changing where it used to be expected that china would be the you know the world's largest economy and now there's assumption that actually might actually be India because the the way the economics have been developing are different. And so there's this kind of rising tide where it makes sense that yeah. you'd want to be in that market a- abs- long term. Right. And even if you're if you are just a um a climate uh you know activist, mm. activist may be the wrong word, but if you're a, yeah. if you're passionate about uh climate change and you're passionate about clean tech, mm. if you just look at on population alone, um what India does matters. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. Yep. So, so whether you're there or not, what what India ultimately uh, decides to do is really important. And G20 is there this year, mm. uh, and that just exagger- you know, makes it so clear that that is the case. Um, there's going to be a lot of buildings built out there. There's going to be a lot of new vehicles mm. on the road out there. There's going to be a- an incredible amount of generation and renewable generation deployed. But in this case, rather than, say, in the UK where we're based or, or a lot of the US, it's not retrofitting renewables into an existing grid. They're growing in real time, yeah. right? And that, again, comes back to the need to actually be able to shift large amounts of, of energy and, and, and make those resources more adequate. Yeah. Well, this is a show about Houston, so we're going to bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're actually in Houston this week. Yeah, I've got a few other meetings, but yeah. uh, Houston has this magnetism, right? Yeah. You just always seem to, to come back here. But uh, yeah, we, we've got several friends and, and partnerships here. Our first interaction in Houston was uh, with the Rice uh, Clean Energy mm-hmm. Accelerator Program. Mm-hmm. So we were, part, we were part of class two mm-hmm. of that program. Loved it. I recommend it if you're a, uh, if you're a startup, clean tech startup. Uh, they run a great program, uh, really good uh, set of, mm-hmm. of uh, mentors, and insight and really great connections to the, to the investment ecosystem here. Off the back of that, we then uh, started talking with Halliburton Labs. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we looked at that program. It's different from the, the Clean Energy Accelerator. It's what they call a scalerator. It's a much mm-hmm. longer term program. <laughs> yeah. right? And I, it's, it's not just a, a, a marketing yep. principle there. It's very much an accelerator, you basically show up and do what you're told. And by mm. the end of it, you're better for it. Right? Yep, <laughs> but yep, like, yep. there's enough program there that you just need to, to jump through all the hoops. And, and it's almost like, um, you know, uh, summer camp. And <laughs> yeah. uh, now on the Scalarator, you go to, to Halliburton Labs and there's all sorts of stuff they can provide, uh, whether it be physical facilities, mm. right? Do mm. you need a footprint space to, to grow out of? Uh, do you want mentoring when it comes to uh, strategic scale up? in terms of flow diagrams and mm. strategic objectives, what should you be solving for? How quickly should you be growing? X, Y, and Z. And then on the engineering side, they have they have a gr- mm. huge group of industrial uh, engineers, right? Mm. Who can look at a product and and look at it through the lens of high manufacturing mm. and, and throughput, as opposed to a lot of us in this early stage startup space, you know, we're looking to, to get things that work as opposed to that we can churn thousands out um, all the time. And so, with Halliburton Labs, we took a view to understand all of this and then uh, applied to be a part of the program, understanding what we thought we could get out, the, out of it and lucky enough to join that program earlier this year. Yeah. So 
uh, we have a consistent back and forth relationship with them to uh, to make sure we're we're both using each other as best as we can and, yeah. and we're accelerating our growth as much as we can with their support and their investment. Yeah, no, they've been um, impressively very startup friendly. And, and I think at one point um, uh, they were telling me one of their goals is to create kind of moments for the startups where they can really point to how things change for their business. And they have really flipped over um, in terms of creating that scalability. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, it's a mindset that, that points to how an organization um, can really support the startup growth cycle. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a nuanced distinction that you point out, like an accelerator early stage, it's, it's prescriptive, it's programmatic. You, you need to follow the process. The goal at the end is to like raise money. Right. All right. And, uh, a scalar rater is a different position where you're, you're trying to say, where's that inflection point where it, we can reduce costs yeah. or manage scale. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah. So it's the, you need all of those in the life cycle of, of growing a company. Yeah. yeah. And f for us, it was very much sooner rather than later understanding where our bench mm. strength was mm -hmm. as a company right mm -hmm. and whilst we have manufacturing knowledge mm -hmm. it's not our core bench strength mm -hmm. and we recognize that and that's where before you you before you realize that within a pilot line yep. <laughs> it's best to realize that early on and onshore that yep. expertise so Halliburton labs was one way we did it mm -hmm. we've also brought in advisors but I think being aware of what you do well and what you need help with is key uh, and a bit of humility can go a long way. And we've, we've certainly found that just being open and receptive to their support and, and bringing that into us and then embedding yeah. that into our DNA going forward has been key. Yeah, no, I, every dollar is so valuable at a startup. You, you don't need to invest in things where you can kind of borrow or rent yeah. that expertise somewhere else. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so it's, it really helps. Um, it's a force multiplier to have a partner like that, for sure. Um, but you're also here in Houston uh, to get in front of customers and partners, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, that fundamental problem mm. we just talked about ERCOT exists yep. here as well. <laughs> yep. um, and so this is a global market and always, yep. uh, uh, always working with various people on developing pilot projects and developing mm. those long-term relationships, as well as looking to the future about potential of, of scaling here as well, mm. right? Um, uh, as we, our ambitions are high, right? Mm -hmm. And as we look forward, uh, we have the potential to deploy all around the world. And that means we're going to need more and more manufacturing all around the world. We're starting out with the UK, mm -hmm. um, but ultimately our plan is once we've demonstrated that profitable manufacturing, we'll be able to uh, cookie cutter that recipe all sorts in all sorts of places. So maybe there's a mega factory on the street in my future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, uh, never wouldn't say never yeah but, but uh we, we got to get there first so, hey, that you know, is uh, so you gotta get sales there first <laughs> and, and you, were, you were sharing with me earlier uh, one of the things you appreciated about working with the with banerjee industry is their their long time horizons yes yeah so share that with me so we've taken we've committed resource mm -hmm. here to come and and attend events like venture houston day to day mm -hmm. and uh, being part of Energy Tech Venture Forum last year, and and all of these things, and one of the reasons we've we've done that is that I I worked in in oil and gas hit, uh, previously, and recognized yes within that DNA is a very long time horizon. Mm -hmm. it, right, they look at things through through a long lens, uh, and they're not just looking at the one or two or three years in front of them. The other part of the equation is they're also extremely technology focused, mm -hmm. right? The oil and gas industry, whilst it may be slow to adopt technologies, if you were to be critical of it, um, 
technology has made the industry what it is today, whether you look at unconventional mm -hmm. space, whether you look at uh, horizontal drilling, all these various pieces are techno technological marvels. Mm. And so bringing those two things together, th those two attributes and those two pieces of culture are really compatible with an investment thesis in deep tech and climate tech, because these things do take time, mm -hmm. right? This is not the same investment uh, opportunity as software. Mm -hmm. And that is a matter of fact, <laughs> yep. right? Yep. But at the same time, if you're passionate about clean tech and the climate, you're not going to solve this problem with software alone. Mm -hmm. You're going to need to to have hardware. And in fact, hardware is going to have the most impact in the long term in terms of tons of CO2 mitigated per dollar invested. I truly believe that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's those combinations of two things where we've seen that DNA seep into the investment community, mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. the emerging investment community. Mm -hmm. uh, and we really liked what we saw there. And the other piece then is working with uh, the incumbent energy industry, right, which I am a big supporter of. Their CVCs, there's no better place mm -hmm. to be than here if you want to interact with the the corporate venture capital groups of of the energy majors. And so that's another opportunity that that we really like here. And and Halliburton Labs to a certain mm -hmm. extent is it's evidence of that, right? We've yeah. seen what we thought validated through our interactions with them. Yeah. And and that's a big piece of the the conference to, uh today. Literally yep. is uh, a lot of a CVC participation, um, a lot of engagement. Um and, and for those who are who've never been to this conference, um, a lot of the CVCs uh, end up presenting to each other about kind of their best practices and learnings. And so it, it's kind of um, uh, shows how the, the, the corporate investment culture here tries to learn from itself um, and, and progress forward in its investment energy. So I, I think it's a, it's a unique to Houston kind of conference. It's a good show. Honestly, yeah. the, the Rice folks um, run one of the best conferences that I've been to. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've, you've probably gone through the investor speed dating uh, yeah. probably once or twice. I'm always impressed how they pull that off. It's efficient. You get it done. Yeah. You meet, you know, 15 investors and you're like, oh man, I wish I could do this at every conference. Yeah. Yeah. You know? and, uh, it, if you can't figure out whether you're a good fit or not in 10 minutes, yeah. you're doing something <laughs> wrong. So it's quite nice just to like, you know, like you say, get through um, a lot of interactions. They ha they ran a Capital Connect event yep. on campus yesterday as yep. well, which I was yep. at, and they did a great job. Okay, that must be new since I did it, so yeah. I got to figure out what that's about. But uh, no, they 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 really they've been doing it for gosh, well over a decade. So um, they're really experts at putting on this really efficient um, uh, program. So would recommend it to any any founder who wants to to um, raise capital in Houston. You got to go through this program, and it's it's a good reason for you to be here. Um, I want to uh, uh, dovetail a little bit into your own background uh, coming from energy. I think uh, you said you were at Exxon before, but tell us about where you started. Yes. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm a chemical engineer yeah. and out of university, uh, well, actually during university, I started interning with ExxonMobil in mm -hmm. the UK, mm -hmm. but I came out of university uh, and joined ExxonMobil. At first I was an engineer, mm -hmm. but I only lasted a year down in a refinery yep. and uh they quickly moved me out of the technical side of the business uh, and into the commercial side of the business, where I was focused on a variety of business development roles mm. um, in the in down in London, in Scotland, in Aberdeen, uh, and here in Houston, working on the Permian. Uh, the the relevant point of that career, I think, for mm. today's discussion, and Lena is at the end of 2019, early 2020. I I joined their trading group as mm. they were building out a trading group. Um, and part of that, I was the bag carrier there. So mm. I let, you know, on my LinkedIn, it says chief of staff, but I was, <laughs> I was the bag carrier. Okay. Um, and, and looking at power markets, emerging power markets, 
what we're going to be the asset mm. classes to invest in today that will be able to monetize on the volatility of tomorrow. And batteries and energy storage is one of those asset classes. So I got naturally curious and started mm. working in this space. Mm -hmm. Very early doors when there wasn't much deployment. But even then, what struck out to me was just this huge amount of disruption potential and the mm. fact that we were building shipping containers and filling them with the exact same cells that we were putting into roadsters that could accelerate mm. like nothing else, right? And mm. a high-performance battery. We're trying to use that for the same thing on energy storage when they, they have two very different use cases. Yeah. So a huge amount of tech disruption to say there must be a better way to right-size the, the solution to this problem. And then the second piece I observed as we, we started looking at people developing these projects was the supply chain just mm. fall apart because, mm. because you had that multifaceted demand, because you had a small set of critical raw materials that is getting pulled by heritage consumer mm. electronics, getting mm -hmm. pulled by EVs mm -hmm. that were just really hitting their inflection point for adoption. And then this growing need for energy storage, it just put too much pressure on it, right? And prices went higher. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that now. We've seen this year versus last year, prices went up for lithium. Yep. And that's not what we saw in solar, which is what everyone was expecting this cost yeah, curve to yeah. do. Um, and we've seen... Uh, We've seen lead times on these things go through the roof. If you order a mega pack from Tesla today, it's like a 24-month lead time or oh, something wow. like okay. that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having seen all that, I said, I'm pretty passionate that there's an opportunity here. And I started then looking at what were the emerging technologies that could fill that, that role mm -hmm. and learned about Lena Energy, who at that point, it was the technical founders that brought it through to proof of concept. But it was this is really great timing because they were looking at, okay, should we put these cells into cars or should mm, we put them into mm. um, you know mobility applications or whatever? Uh, and I was coming in it from a this is the perfect technology to optimize and only optimize for energy storage, right? Try to get the cost as low as you can by focusing on the performance metric that that yeah. energy storage needs. Yeah. Uh, and so since then, I kind of say my, my role, overarching role at, at Lean is to make sure we're focused on that that problem yeah. and not the solution anymore yeah no i think it's a, an astute observation to think about the supply chain and think about where you kind of sit in the value chain because at, at the end of the day mobility must have that kind of energy density and they will pay a premium for it exactly I, you know even the, the most um the most expensive lithium-ion batteries end up probably being in your you know your iphone because that needs to be you know the most mobile and most controlled yeah. and most safe um, and, and energy storage only cares about kind of that longer duration energy, um, not power density, but energy yeah. density. And so you kind of, um, you, you end up being a little bit more of a price taker in, yeah. in that kind of situation is one way to think about it. It's one way to think about yeah. it. There's, there's a spectrum in terms of what duration you need and mm. what performance mm -hmm. metrics you need, depending mm -hmm. on what you want to do with it. Yeah. Right. Today, if I look at what a battery is doing. Uh, most of the investment is going into batteries which are providing ancillary services and specifically frequency response. And that mm, mm -hmm. we could have a whole discussion <laughs> about what that is and, and why. And, and, ex yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? Um, but ultimately, what that means is they're sitting on standby and they're injecting mm -hmm. and they're consuming large amounts of power in a very short amount of time. And by doing so, they're keeping the, the frequency in check mm -hmm. despite the fact that we're losing inertia off the grid, right? Yep. As we're retiring yep. heritage yep. spin-based yep. spin generation. Technically, you don't need a battery more than an hour long to be able to do that, mm, right? Mm. Uh, because you're sitting on standby and it's pretty reciprocal. So as yeah. many times as you're pulling power, you're pushing power in a few minutes later. Um, as we look beyond that one hour, and by, by the way, lithium ion, perfect technology yep, for, for that. that. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, we then get into a space between one hours and four hours where a couple of, of performance criteria come in, a perfor couple of um, uh, 
priorities come in, but you're seeing more trading. Mm. First is real-time trading. So most markets around the world will have gate closure and then real-time balancing where power is never produced as you expect it to be, yep. right? But it has to be perfectly balanced. And so there's this real-time minute minute market mm. where people are, are trading power back and forth and batteries are really well placed there, mm. right? Because they can, if someone's ended up long, they can take that in and get paid sometimes yeah, to, yeah, to charge. Yeah. Then you look beyond that and, and rather than real-time trading, you start looking at, at block trading and day ahead trading and you know screen arbitrage. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the gap between two and four hours. But all through that, lithium ion is, is best in class right now. Mm -hmm. It will be tough to disrupt because they've got years and years of, of uh, benefit behind them and scale behind them. What we're looking at is that next phase. Now, what mm -hmm. I'd call medium duration, which is between four and eight hours, and it mm -hmm. goes back to you know, the duck curve and exactly. two peaks in a day. Ideally, you want to take the solar in the middle of the day and shift it to the afternoon, which you talked a lot about. Mm. But if you want the most out of your battery, you should also be charging a base load overnight and discharging mm. that into that morning mm. peak. And so mm -hmm. four to eight hours, medium duration, is really about load shifting. And that's where cost is now really important. You yeah. can stack those ancillary services, but you just need to get the cost really, really low to make that economic. The next, <laughs> the next stage after that is probably eight to to 16 hours or 24 mm. hours. And that's a diurnal kind of one cycle yep. a day battery, which can, you can do a variety of things. You can have a, a completely off-grid yourself with solar, right? So you can convert yep. that solar into ready available when you need it. Um, or you can blockify your solar and sell it as a PPA, mm. sell it as a rateable PPA instead of as produced, which typically has a pretty big discount these days. Um, and so the final step, which is emerging, it's, it's new, um, is is a hundred people are out there making hundred hour, hundred fifty mm. hour batteries that are trying to be a holistic alternative to a coal plant. Yep. yep. So yep. it's enough storage there that if you connect it, it will be able to weather any sort of outage mm. combination of solar, wind, and importantly, wind. Right? Wind can be gone for for several days, and so oh, okay. these hundred and fifty no, hour, okay. hundred yeah. hundred and fifty hours. It's almost the last step you need if you wanted to completely mm. uh, renewableize. Yep. That's a word I just made up. A <laughs> uh, 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 grid, and so that and that last piece is where cost is even more important, yeah. right? At that point, you, you're talking a megawatt per acre, um, yeah. and oh, so wow. you just need to get it really, 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 really yeah. cheap. So, so I do think in this spectrum, and it's a little bit like cars, right? And mm. mobility, you're probably going to have a different battery in your two wheeler versus your city car, versus your high-performance car, mm. you're going to see a technology spectrum evolve over time. Yeah. Uh, we've kind of fallen in love with lithium. We fell into that relationship. I'm glad we did because it's unlocked a ton of mm. potential. Um, but we're now starting to see the strains of that relationship as we're using it for everything and anything. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, I, I can see how you were in a position to understand that, that and appreciate that, that uh, different needs and different prioritization. And the duck curve is the one that we're focused on most today. The, um, as you were talking about the diurnal um, uh, need to shift power, I have solar and battery on, on my house. And there are days where it's just the sun isn't shining enough. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I have grid backup. And yep. I, I don't have to be fully independent because uh, I would have been out of power by uh, 10 a.m. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> you hey, know, island yourself. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, not to go off too yeah. much of a tangent, but uh, yeah. uh, recently, got a model three yep. and, and one of the other interesting things you can do at a residential scale is that uh, they have a scheme out there where i tell the um the grid mm. at what time i need my my mm -hmm. battery charged mm -hmm. 7 a.m mm -hmm. is what i tell them and, and they'll charge it when they want mm -hmm. right and so that's another way of dealing with that's more of a, a frequency not frequency response but it's more of a 
hour by hour issue. But when when my service provider, my utility is long power, they just send it to my car mm. instead of having to turn mm. down or or incentivize someone to switch off. So we're seeing a, a ton of interesting stuff happen as we integrate storage, combine it with with new uh, suppliers, sorry, demand side mm-hmm. response software and and intuitive algorithms to know when we're going to use energy. I think it's a huge space that we we don't participate much in ourselves. Yep. I look at yep. it as a fan and a geek rather than uh, yeah. um, from a leaner perspective. But uh, it's fascinating just in the last few years how how different that um, that ecosystem now looks. Right, yeah. and how much control can now be put on the demand side as opposed to the supply side? How much you can do on yeah. that side? No, I, I remember was it five or six years ago it, it was a concept paper that people would do that yeah. and now it was a question of who would actually do it would there be a startup uh facilitating it but really the uh it's the utilities who said no we you know we yeah. need the ability uh to, to put that long power somewhere which yeah. uh i think is, is brilliant and it's good and it's we need good it. um so uh that, that that's fantastic to hear um when you think about um kind of the you know moving the business forward um, tell me about some roadblocks you guys might have experienced in the last year and, and how did you overcome them? Yeah, I, the most common roadblock is that you never have enough resource <laughs> coming from ExxonMobil, right? Which yeah. you have a ton of resource behind you. It can take some time to get to the point where you've decided to yeah. do something. But I never felt that constrained when you had the the world behind mm-hmm. you at, at ExxonMobil. In a startup, you're always, you, you never have enough money, you never have mm-hmm. enough people, and you never have enough time. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just a constant uh a constant stream uh i think if i look to the to the biggest roadblocks one is is having the conviction early on mm. to believe in your product market fit, yeah right? it takes quite a bit of um it's a combination of humility and confidence yeah. which is quite a juxtaposition yeah. right but but you need to to be confident enough to say this is where the tech is going to make the most difference mm-hmm. And humble enough to when someone says, "Yeah, but could you put it in cars?" Because that's a huge market. You'd be like, I, "I could, but it's really not what we should be doing." That's right? a conviction. That's, yeah, that's, it's, yeah. It's, it's the conviction, and and you know, I think going through that, in hindsight, you always wish you'd you'd got there much quicker. Right? Mm. I think, uh, but it's so important for a startup to to find where they can make the most impact and then lean in and almost. The niche, your beachhead market, mm-hmm. something I've found, um, the better. Yeah. Because when you find those those customers who are really, really stranded, who don't have an alternative, who really need your technology, and there may be less of them who are the most acute at mm. that pain point. There may be less of them, but they are going to be willing to grow with you, yeah. right? Because they're t- your technology is so important to their long term vision. Um. So I think getting to that getting to that place as soon as possible is is something I would say is um. Uh, we're glad we're there, right? But it's yeah. something to, you know, being humble, something that I always wish we had got there yeah. sooner, right? And, yeah. and not be afraid to go real niche. Well, and I love to ask this question of entrepreneurs. How, how did you know that you had product market fit? What was the the feeling where you said, this is it? For for the ultimate validation yeah. was when you had large, strategic, big companies, right? Who mm-hmm. really don't have much reason to engage with early stage startups until you're ready to sell them 10 yep. megawatts or 20 yeah. megawatts. Um, in India, it was when we were seeing traction with those large, you know, tier one organizations mm. and having them ready to, to sign agreements. That was when I thought, okay, we, the, yeah. we suspected it, but now this is the, the proof that um, we really have found a spot that needs our tech. 
Yeah. Uh, earlier on on that, I think, um, you know, it's funny, we talk about the temperature and from the start, we've always said that the fact that we operate at high temperatures is great, right? We're doing mm. that because we know we can then use heat to our advantage and we can get these high range of efficiencies. Um, but, but early days, some people don't like that, right? Mm. It's a bit abrasive because you think, when you think of a battery, you think of something like an AA, mm-hmm. or you think of your laptop and you, it, but the fire's yeah. belief to think that that could be a high temperature. Whereas again, when we started talking to customers, they say, we're operating at high temperature and they almost finish the sentence for you. They're like, oh, because then you don't have to worry about cooling, right? Yep. Or oh, there you can, you, you can operate in high temperatures, right? And they, they're, they know that problem so well yep. Yep. that they, they, they lean it. connect the, yeah. the dots, right? Yeah. Um, and so again, it was another example of, okay, you, you really need to lean in on what you're doing well and, and be proud and, and push that to the, to the front of your agenda. Yeah, no, I, I think that was also uh, a good comment when you said, you know, these big companies, these tier one companies are uh, kind of break the mold and need to talk to you and, and are willing to get to agreements when they usually wouldn't pay attention to a company that's less than, I don't know, 100 million in revenue. That's when you know they've looked everywhere else. Yes. Right. And, and Which this doesn't is the feel solution. great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, that's part but, of the matchmaking. But that's process. the humility as well, yeah. right? That's the, it's, 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 it's being okay with the fact mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the battery space is quite renowned, unfortunately, mm. for mm. a lot of people at a very early stage making very grandiose mm. claims. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think instead of going out and putting a piece of paper to say, I'm going to go from current state, maybe seed stage, to mm. I'm going to have 20 gigawatt hours and I'm going to have X percent of the lithium-ion market by uh, 2025, right? Yeah. That's not something anyone can really believe in from my mm. perspective, mm-hmm. right? I think it can go back to humility. It's like I've found this pocket of, mm. of the ecosystem where lithium ion is just not reaching, right? For multiple reasons. And I'm sure there's other companies like us that and you look at the landscape and we talked about different durations, there's all sorts of other metrics that's gonna divide the performance mm. priorities of customers. There's other sections all around here where new chemistries are coming into play, right? And it's from those seeds of of beachhead customers, then you will will see this growth of a variety of different technologies and for for sure, I believe that we're going to see a diverse battery mix in the future, right? Mm. We're not going to see a one-size-fits-all. We are going to see a, a diverse set of solutions meeting a diverse set of problems. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Let's see. I want to go back a little bit to Houston because we're, we're running a little low on time. Uh, we talk about why you're here uh, in, in Halliburton Labs. Um. And and I think you've been here over three years now, or two years, two years. We going back and forth. yeah, about two what, years. Tell me about what's changed in the last two years, because you 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 especially get to jump in and see things kind of evolve. Yeah, yeah it's it's a good question. I think uh, there's a lot that hasn't changed, which mm. is the good parts of yeah. of Texas. I gotta say, it's always nice to come here. This people are so nice, <laughs> <laughs> right? People yeah. talk to each other. Yeah, right? and, maybe, and and that's true where we are in the north of England, which is yeah. more true. But versus say London, where I've spent sure. a bunch of my okay. time, it's quite nice yep. to yep. <laughs> have a bunch of friendly faces. Um, I think what I've seen change most significantly is is in and around the approach to clean tech and the approach to mm. uh, climate especially from the the large companies. One thing for me which cemented the conviction of the energy majors was when we started switching to science-based targets. Mm. Because one thing Mm. I've always Hmm. seen, and you know, if I think back to my time in the industry, once you set a plan and budget to things, we knew how to steward that. (laughs) We knew how to make sure we were on time and on budget. And uh, rather than taking uh, climate tech and clean tech as a... um, an additional loose strategic priority mm. which you could have been accused of. I'm, I'm not accusing them of it. 
it was open to that level of criticism. Once you converted that into, okay, we're going to hit X, Y, and Z by mm -hmm. this year, I think we started to see a lot more motivation to now deploy existing technologies. We're seeing more and more folks deploy renewables within their portfolio, right? There's a spectrum mm -hmm. of who's doing more, who's doing less. Um, but we're also seeing that seep into the CVCs, right? Because mm -hmm. the CVCs mm -hmm. are now getting a direct pulse check for what the business line needs mm -hmm. in order to hit these science-based targets. And so they're out and they're they're shopping, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and they're shopping within a pretty tightly defined thesis now of what they want. Um, yeah. And luckily, energy storage is on the top of the list for a lot of them, right? Yeah. No, it's it's that old adage, right? What gets measured gets managed, yeah. and and the science gives you a way to measure it objectively. Yeah. Right. Um, do you, I, I'm curious because you you do come um, from a more European perspective. I think uh, we obviously see a new uh, CEO at Shell who's kind of uh, pulling the pendulum back a little bit, and I think we're seeing it with some of the other um, European energy companies. Is that is that something you guys are feeling over there, or is it is it more just um, a water cooler talk? <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough question. Yeah. yeah, it's a good question. So let me just give up my yeah. personal yeah. opinion on this. Right, my my personal opinion on it is that we did see energy security, mm. not just the 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 carbon intensity of our energy, but energy security over the last couple of years, for obvious reasons, with everything going yeah. on in, in Ukraine come into the equation mm -hmm. right and i think that's a big driver behind yeah. the fact that we we need a mix of secure but also long-term clean sources of energy yeah and that's probably driven some of the the shakeup. i think the other thing just speaking completely yeah. candidly yeah. is that oil and gas made a ton of money <laughs> <laughs> right yes and these are publicly listed companies yep, yep. and at the end of the day um you're going to want to reinvest the money you make mm. in a means of, of making more money, right? And yep. when you have such a step change, if you go from COVID, yep. negative oil, right? Yep. I was in Houston yep. when oh, we man. saw yep. uh, negatively priced oil to $110 a barrel a day. And, and that's where the majority of your revenue is coming from. It's no surprise that something shifted yep. right? from yep. a strategy perspective, yep. right? Yep. You have to adapt and change. But I do think long-term, the strategic priorities remain, mm -hmm. which is bring in safe, secure, and uh, reliable and low carbon energy into the mix. Right? Yeah. And the best part about that is the low carbon energy is the cheapest as well, right? Once you've got it deployed, is the is yeah. the cheapest. Um, no, it, I think that's one of the things that we don't feel as much here in Houston is the energy security aspect. Um, energy always needs to be reliable and always yeah. needs to be on, but just the the you know the events in Ukraine. Um, really drive that conversation in a way where, you know, in the U.S., we're a net energy exporter now. Yeah. Now. You know, take it back <laughs> 15 years ago, the, the conversation was all about how do we have energy yeah. security here? Um, and, and so I can understand how that really shifts the, the way people think. Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing it here to share with us. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think yeah. on, on yeah. Relia um, reliability is another yeah. thing, though, right? Because yeah. that's, that's the other important role that specifically energy storage, but also mm. renewables plays. Yeah. I was here during the big freeze of 2020, right? Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, Yuri, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, we just had a small kid, and I remember mm. my, my mm. wife being frustrated by the fact that we had power cuts in the middle yep. of the summer because it was too hot. Yep. We got a big freeze, and we got power cuts, and we've got all this you know, gas infrastructure. And on the surface of things, let's be honest, it's pretty jarring to mm. be in the energy capital of the world with all this incredible wealth of, yep. of gas resource 
and sit there and have a, a grid that is super uh, constrained and mm. it's struggling mm. and it's on the verge of collapse, mm. right? And I think that was a wake up call as well for industry, which is okay. Uh, you you need you need a diverse mix and a robust mix mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, for me, that was again that came around the time when I was formulating this thesis, which yeah. was we're gonna need cheaper energy storage so it actually gets deployed on these grids, right? And it's not just a a, a pet project. Yeah. No. And and. To be honest, that that was the experience we had where we decided we're going to get solar and a battery, yeah, just so we could ride through the six hours we don't have power, yeah, um, but also to protect against the the future challenges if there were any. And um, luckily, we had the, the the means and the ability to finance, yes, uh, which which not everyone does, which is why you need to have have cheaper power. Um, but in uh, going back to the Houston ecosystem, are there, are there other changes you've seen? So you've seen the CVCs have changed. What about the uh, I guess the support um, parts of the ecosystem? I mean. I'm not sure I can say that I've seen a shift, mm. but I can certainly say that you you yourself attested mm. to the how well Venture Houston mm. has put on, right? Mm -hmm. I think the same thing with Energy Tech Venture Forum. Um, there's a ton of support here across. You've got startups mm. and a, a real maybe that maybe that thinking out loud. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the observations yeah. is just if I go to the Ion or I go to Greentown yeah. Labs, there's always another hardware deep tech startup that I didn't know before who's mm -hmm. popped up since the last visit, yep. right? So yep. we yep. are, we, we, it seems here in Houston, people are not afraid about deep tech and I love that, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. someone's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, someone's got to bring this, this hardware in. Yeah. Um, so that's great. But then on the other side, I think just across startups, then you've got the, the service providers and support um, ecosystem like places like the Ion, like Greentown Labs. You've got the investors themselves. And then you've got the the big corporates. All of those are represented at these events mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, well represented. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got more and more students as well coming. Hmm. So at the, the event today, look at the name badges, there's a ton of students out there yeah, as well. Good. And they're seeing this live, right? And that's the, the pipeline of talent that is going to need to feed all of these different places. So it's a bit of a weak answer, but I'll just no, say, I think yeah. it, it, you, I was pleasantly surprised given, you know, I lived back here hmm. um, you know, going back to, to 2000. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised to see the amount of energy and enthusiasm for clean tech and for climate tech. So, so maybe I'll, uh, th this next question, it's not really limited to innovation, but just given you, you've been here so long um, in the past, uh, what, what's a hidden gem about Houston that, that people should consider when they think about, should I move my business here? Um, so let, me, let me just think about it. The, the obvious one, which is not a hidden gem, because I think everyone knows it, is the food. Yes. Right? <laughs> but you probably get that answer all yeah. the time. Well, um, no, what's your favorite food? And, and, and obviously, it's not the same as, as like chicken tikka masala in London. So yeah. what, what's your favorite here? Crawfish and noodle. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, I love going, on, uh, going to, to crawfish and noodle. And yeah. uh, if, if I'm here during crawfish season, oh, man. I will be messy. Yeah, no, I, we get a... Uh, we, uh, I get a couple of entrepreneurs together to go out and, and get crawfish uh, when, when it's uh, mid-season. And I think Greentown also runs like a crawfish night. And um, they will fill up, what is it, three long tables, probably 80 people, pull out the crawfish. It will smell like crawfish for a week in there. Um, but that's, <laughs> well, I was going to say, awesome. so yeah. the most the most obvious recommendation I'd say if you're, if you're yeah. coming to, to Houston, right, and you want to set up an office, I think if you just go to the Ion or mm. you go to Greentown Labs and mm. you just take a look at the facilities available there, not only the collaboration spaces, right, which is yeah. a min minimum required, but if you look at the maker space that the Ion's got as well, you've got quite mm. a lot of hardware 
and more and more hardware getting deployed into these systems. So everyone doesn't need to build their own lab. Everyone doesn't need to build their own 3D printer mm-hmm. or buy their own 3D mm-hmm. printer. Mm-hmm. And so I think especially for those earlier stages, that, that becomes increasingly um, increasingly valuable. And yeah. it's a low-cost route to, to building an office, right? Yeah. And building Good. a presence. And um, what are some gaps that you see in the Houston ecosystem where it's like, oh, if only we had this? <laughs> so it could always do with more investors, right? Yeah. Is that, <laughs> As is a it, startup. It, but um, investors early stage, is that? Uh, I, 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 I can only look at it through the stages we, we've sure. been through, right? Uh, we're at Series A right now, mm. and I think there's, that's really well represented. Series A, yeah. there's a lot of focus on that. I think that's a sweet spot for a lot of CVCs as well. Um, I, I think... But but there's a defensiveness as well, right? Mm. Which which I've observed, which is even even through the program, it's like, well, we might not be the West Coast, and I was like, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> as an outsider, right? From, yeah. From from coming at it from the European side, West Coast, Houston, whatever, I still see a ton of uh, thesis, mm. investment thesis that are aligned with climate tech, which are aligned with mm. uh, deep tech again. Um, so for for me, it's less of a comparison. It's more just about mm. okay, leaning in on that conviction, leaning in on the strengths that we mm. talked about, that focus on technology, that long term thinking, uh, and pulling that into to the funds here. Um, yeah. Is is you know, I think more of that is better. Um, yeah. and, and we'll see more and more programs like the Rice Clean Energy Accelerator. I think grow out of it, and uh, it's just self fulfilling uh, circle, right? Self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Good. Well. Well, we're all working on it, so <laughs> we'll get we'll, we'll check in in a year and see what it's like. Um, so uh, as we think about um, you know, where you guys are headed next, is there anything our audience can do to support you guys at, at Lena? I would say follow us on LinkedIn. LinkedIn yeah. is the best place to Good. get our uh, real time updates. Uh, we tend to showcase when we're doing things in the lab. Like last week, mm. we installed a new robot and. <laughs> You know, I'm then the commercial guy, so I shouldn't really be down on the lab. And I think everyone like sees me in the lab. And it's like I'm play make make believe scientist, yeah. right? But uh, geeked out massively. So I took a video of that and just fun stuff like that. I think gives you a real sense of the DNA of Lena. And then if you're an investor who are looking uh, in around Series A, um, you know, more than happy to get in touch with us, uh, whether it be for this round or the next round. Yep. Um, just uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and and happy to 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 share what we're all about. Good. And I'll, and I'll have that information in the show notes for, for people who want to find Will. Um, fantastic. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I said when I got here, like, this is a fantastic <laughs> studio. I just wish I could stay here and we can try some of your whiskey the rest of the day. But we, we've got real work to do. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's what? Still Thursday morning. So maybe later. <laughs> Not in UK time, but oh, let's okay, take that offline. That's, that's good. All right. All right. There we go. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. You can learn more about this company on DW Insights, a marketplace for energy technologies. On the platform, you can access early new episodes and content, and you can also discover exciting technologies. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.